Welcome to the Good Shepherd and the Child podcast, where we explore the spirituality of the Christian child using the method of catechesis of the Good Shepherd. I am your host, Carrie Mackey Lozano. Today, we have Sherry Mock on the podcast again to speak into the beauty and depth of practical life, both in the atrium, in our home, and throughout our life. I hope you enjoy. Welcome back, Sherry, to the Good Shepherd and the Child podcast. Thank you so much. It's such a privilege. We are so glad that you are here with us again. (laughs) Would you tell us a little bit about who you are, Sherry? Who I am. Well, I am a sheep in the sheepfold of the Good Shepherd. (laughs) Glad to be here. Um, I was, um, I originally discovered the uh, catechesis work, actually, uh, when my children, my boys, who are now 50, um, were in a Dominican Montessori school. So I was cutting out sheep and shepherds before I knew what they were about. (laughs) <laughs> anyway, uh, eventually I was able to, um, to take the Montessori training, the primary Montessori training uh, that was in a temporary training center in Houston at that time, um, and then uh, was able finally to, uh, to go to the, um, the catechesis formation. Oh, goodness, the first one was in, what, Notre Dame? Uh, years ago, and then uh, have have then been able to complete my training for being a trainer. And so the last 30 odd years, I have been in and out of atriums, in and out of classrooms. So it's been a real, it's been a real journey. I can tell you that. Um, but I loved it. It's informed my life. It's changed my life in many, many ways. So I'm so excited to to share um, anything that I might have that can help others. Well, we're excited to hear your wisdom. I'm so excited about this topic because you're like the queen of practical life. So this is so perfect that you are here talking to us about practical life today. You realize, of course, that we could we could spend the next 200, 300 hours talking about this, right? I would love for you to just kind of explain to us what practical life is. Like, <laughs> okay. This is one of those topics that, um, you know, whenever I have a parent that's in the atrium and they see their child, especially a level one child, if they see their child just spooning for 30 minutes, <laughs> they're like sitting there wondering, what am I putting my child in? Like, what is the value of this and why is this important? So please answer this question of what is practical life and why is it so important? You know, that's a universal observation. It really <laughs> is. And it's, it's one of those things that that um, is so critical to all that uh, happens in the atrium or in the classroom or even at home that mm-hmm. we, um, we kind of overlook it. So yes, I will be glad to do such things. So first mm-hmm. of all, when we think of those activities, what we are looking at are purposeful and productive work that are taken from the daily life of the family or the daily mm-hmm. life of an atrium, or the daily life of a classroom. And these are, above all, beneficial to an individual's development, and they gradually become conscious, collaborative work undertaken for the greater good of others. Now, they mm-hmm. are simple, essential, ordinary tasks that children and adults do to prepare to maintain, restore, to beautify environments, 
they are not contrived activities that are not mm-hmm. found in real life. Nor are they pretend activities that cannot reach their full use in meaningful developmental purposes. So, so they all have an end game. They all, None of absolutely. them are just busy it, work. Oh, no. No, no, no. So let's start, let's start big and then we'll come down. So Montessori okay. did not specifically outline one universal set of materials for practical life. Instead, she created categories that she observed to be the most relevant to a child's life and development. And there were five categories. Mm-hmm. And the first one are uh, very basic or preliminary procedures that are necessary for successfully completing some real work. <laughs> they make real work possible, opening and closing, transferring items from one container to another, which is what, mm-hmm. you know, what's, what that is, pouring rice, pouring water, spooning this, whatever, using a funnel, using scissors, all of those skills that are necessary and fundamental to other applied pieces of, of real work. Now, those are the ones that are the hardest to explain, I think, to parents, unless we go into yeah, some detail yeah. about that. Um, it is, the, I would also suggest that these are also transitory in that they're not always in every atrium all of the time. They're not always in every classroom all of the time. Because as the children are mastering these, they no longer need to practice and they go straight into whatever it is that those exercises are preparing them to do. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. the first category. So for example, like we do pouring from like dry, like pouring rice from one cup to yes. another as a preliminary activity because then we're going to pour water from one cup to another so that then we can pour wine and water into the cruet. That's that's exactly right as far as the atrium is concerned and we also Mm -hmm. do that because what we hope eventually is for the child to be able to do these important things by themselves and they need to practice and it's better if they practice on rice or water than it is bright red wine (laughs) Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. it it is those are very um those are very important to to allow them to to repeat um and we don't want them to repeat with using something as precious as the wine Mm -hmm. that it builds those preliminary activities like the pouring and the spooning in the opening and closing they just build such confidence in those younger children those two and three year olds who who probably have had it all done for them in many situations. In all situations. Now they're sitting there. <laughs> yes, yeah. indeed. You know, they're sitting there pouring and opening and walking with water. It's so fun to see these little ones like walk with a cup of water as if like, wow, I'm holding glass with water in it. it well, really it does. It gives them such dignity, such, mm-hmm. you know, they feel important. And mostly they feel a part of the family part of the community Mm -hmm. because now they can do something they see older people older children do all the time and they want to be a part of that group so that's they're very Mm -hmm. important so what's the second group well i put grace and courtesy in second i i don't know that there's any particular order to these um but Mm -hmm. i did put grace and courtesy uh because demonstrating good manners 
is how we move about in our environments, whether home or school or atrium. Mm -hmm. Um, It's how we learn to observe other people. It's how we interrupt, how we get attention, how we say no nicely, how we participate in small groups and even a communal group and all of those things that involve other people. Mm-hmm. And even very young children can participate in these particular exercises. And I'm going into quite a lot of detail on this a little bit later in this podcast because I think it is something uh, we neglect because it doesn't sit on a shelf. The third one is to help the child take care of himself or herself. And that involves everything dressing, undressing, washing hands putting on a jacket, uh, tying shoes, preparing an individual snack, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that leads into then taking care of one's environment. Um, It starts out very, very small. It may be just those clothes that you take off or your, your bed or your toy. But even little ones can take care of the environment if we, if we show them how. So, you know, it gets then involved later into dish and cloth washing or drying and folding, even ironing, dusting, caring for plants, food preparation, sweeping, uh, scrubbing. There's just so much about that that can that, mm-hmm. that is so interesting for the little ones. Yeah, they love all that. Oh, they love it all. Now, the last one spans uh, the whole of, let's say, the primary level because we're going to talk about control of movement. And there are two main pieces, and I will say work, because these are indeed productive work for the development of the child. Um, There's a whole sequence of activities from just barely walking with balance, which if you think about a a two-and-a-half-year-old or three, that is such a new skill. That's tough. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. uh, we go from walking with balance to both feet, on a line, from carrying objects, heel touching a toe, uh, and then walking to uh, an accompaniment. Um, so that's very important. Uh, there's much to say about the that sequence of activities, and I'm not going to go into that very much right now. I, I cannot tell you, as far as the life of an atrium is concerned, how important it is for the child to be able to, to hold himself in this balance and to to walk in a dignified and human-like way. Mm-hmm. The other one has to do with silence. Now, that doesn't mean just staying still. What it means is stopping a movement. It is the activity, the movement that causes sound. So the first thing, and think about that. If you have muscles that are made mostly of water, How hard is that to control and to stop? (laughs) So that's something that is practiced and practiced. And it just starts by helping the child stop a movement, stilling their body, creating silence, maintaining it, which is another great work, Mm -hmm. tracking sounds, naming sounds, and finally, maybe in the... Oh, I mean, it may be the very last of the first year. Can they actually participate in the communal 
exercise of, of what I call the gift of silence, because they must hold themselves silent and wait for their name to be called out of the whole group. So that's very, that's a, that's a hard thing to do when you're three, mm-hmm. or especially four. <laughs> uh, so that, those are the categories. Um, now, I want to talk a little bit about Montessori's perspective of work because that's very, very different. And uh, in, in these days, work is kind of looked as, at, as some kind of thing we must suffer through. Uh, right, something, right. You know, it, it's not, it isn't given a place of value. And that is absolutely not what Montessori believed about it. She believed that all creation was given special gifts and that God endowed very, very special ones to the human beings. And she writes, mankind does not work just to fulfill our own needs, but also to support the needs of others. Consider the baker or the miner or the farmer. There is a universal generosity that requires no concrete motivation. It's not occasional or sporadic, it is a kind of charity, a kind of love that continues beyond expected thanks and and requires a lifetime of dedication to loving our neighbors. She says it will indeed, (laughs) this idea will indeed be objected to because we as individuals in a society don't work for the good of others. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that we have a job and we labor to support our own individual uh, existence or perhaps to earn a livelihood in order to uh, live as enjoyable as possible. And she says that's partially true. <laughs> but that's only the conscious part. There is this unconscious desire in each of us and in every every creation to carry on unconsciously the work of God in creation. And Mm -hmm. so we all obey this silent command that rules and preserves life everywhere in the universe. Now, let's give a kind of example. What she's offering here is the history uh, that views ordinary human beings as great workers true workers, true heroes of history, because mankind is the transformer of our environments. Man, in other words, she says, is God's chief agent on earth for Mm co-creation. In Dr. Montessori's thinking, all the forces of nature then, all the elements, all the living creatures, are all great workers. And every one of those creatures has a work, a task that is unique to the species, but also there's a purpose above and beyond the individual's task that has a role to play which sustains the harmony of the earth. We can think of what, I mean, I can go on and on with this, uh, earthworms, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Do they dig a hole <laughs> uh, just for their own existence? Partly. 
but there's a beyond, there's a task beyond that, which is to aerate the soil to give it even mm-hmm. more nourishment, to give it even more uh, possibility for a greater growth. And we can do that for every single, and that's the greatest fun. The elementary child loves this game. <laughs> what is <laughs> the cosmic task of a mosquito? Right. Can you think of one good thing it does? Well, actually, it's food for other animals. There may be a. It's so beautiful because it's like Montessori had this different definition of work altogether. Just like dual definition of work for yourself, like the my personal purpose, but this cosmic work, the purpose for the whole universe, and how my work contributes to other people. And Carrie, what she says about that, she says that every single element of creation is has a built-in generosity. That God put generosity in every single Ooh, I like every that. single element of creation. I love that too. But let's talk a little bit about human work, human energy, (laughs) because that too has been given to undertake specific missions on earth. All right. Why were Adam and Eve created? What was their first task? Well, to be caretakers, to work in a garden, right? To be stewards, um, to to uh, take upon themselves the dominion. And when I think that word is used, it really does mean the support of, not the domination of, but the support of, of, of nature, of, of taking care of the gifts of God. But beyond that, mankind was also given this amazing adaptation amazing skill, this desire really first of supporting the well-being of others. And beyond even that, we are created to be the witnesses to the unfathomable love and faithfulness of God our Creator to the rest of the world. Now those are pretty big jobs. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> important and valuable and no matter who the human being is we all have that unconscious desire well (laughs) does it always show no it doesn't um i do want to go back and look though at the very beginning of montessori's work especially in education uh, because it was there that she discovered this essential importance of this productive and individual work of the child. Um, In the first casa, I don't, well, even in this first casa, let me go it this way. And the children stayed there from eight in the morning until six at night. So you can imagine. Yeah. But she she discovered they were tireless in work Um, and they didn't manifest this fatigue. They seemed even to be refreshed. Now, that's hard to imagine. Yeah. And I think, though, that that we can look at ourselves. And when we are doing something that's 
productive, it's useful, it's valuable, it's it's fulfilling to ourselves. Mm-hmm. We don't get tired. In fact, it's just it's an, an amazing sense of really it is refreshment. Whether that means nursing a child <laughs> or doing something for um, for our family, for working. Uh, hard because we know that what we do is important. All of these things are the same in children. And she said, too, that even these little ones, once they establish themselves in work, they began to work with concentrated concentration. Um, they repeated the activities and they got stronger, more capable, more independent. And as they did that, the typical... <laughs> characteristics associated with childhood, such as, oh, timidity, aggression, possessiveness, even lying, disorder, inattention. All these things began slowly and gradually to disappear. And instead, They gave way to repetition until satisfaction, to independence, to control, refined and quiet movement, attention to detail, concentration. I mean, it's just, it's amazing. It was, it was beyond that, calm, joyful, self-responsible, kind, and they worked and worked. So what I hear you saying, Sherry, is that the children in that first casa, like when she started exploring practical life in different materials with them, they found a peace in these works that they had never encountered before that gave them, that rejuvenated them to where they had energy, even though they were working these um, in the casa for hours. Yeah. Yeah, right. She did. Um, and then and, and as she began to observe this, she realized that what she was seeing is, is a child's actual normal nature. Hmm. Uh, but this normal nature is only revealed under particular conditions. And as she changed those conditions, <laughs> and you have to remember, these children started out at huge tables with big chairs with you know, sitting down and only one day at a time, step by step, you know, little bit by little bit, did those things change. And Dr. Montessori would would watch. And if she saw that that was happening, then she would act upon that again and she would make that a part of the environment and then just watch. And over time, as a scientist, not as an educator, but as a scientist, she mm-hmm. began to see um, that when a child has the opportunity to engage in an independent, freely chosen activity with a material that is interesting to them, um, then that activity begins to hold a great fascination and interest. Mm-hmm. Um, the greatest thing she discovered was they have to be spared from the interference from adults. 
<laughs> you know, and I know I said this before, but I always think about this. She laid a, a string of beads. Maybe it was a rosary, but I don't know what it was. But it was a string of beads on the lap of the adults when they came into um, in, into the environment with the children. And she <laughs> she had them move a bead every time there was this impulse to go help a child. Oh, wow. That's cool. <laughs> Wasn't it? I thought it was. I did, too. And, I, you know, we still have to do that. We still are. Our impulse as an adult is to help. Uh, and that's a good impulse. But I think what she was trying to say is that we have to be very observant in ourselves that we support the development of the child because we can't do anything about developing a child from the outside mm-hmm. of them. So anyway, th- those things were, you know, it was, it's a fascinating history, but, but these things are very, very important. This normal nature has to have these, the, an environment that supports it. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, that spirit interference from adults is important, but they also have to be able to carry out the work for as long as they need to satisfy themselves and at a pace <laughs> that is the child's own rhythm. Yeah. Those are pretty tricky to do mm-hmm. if you have a 30 minute atrium. Oh, of course. Yes. That would be very hard. So she looked at work as something that was internal and that was for a child's own development. She says, spontaneous developmental work is what is required for the emergent normal characteristics. And what she cons- that, and all of this process, she considered the process of normalization. Mm-hmm. And she says, it is the most important single result of our whole method. Does that mean like when you see a child who has become normalized, that is kind of the apex of what we are going for in the atrium, especially with practical life? Yes. And she gives specific things that we can look for as we observe children to do, you know, that shows that they have indeed reached that, um, that beginning point of normalization, which is really just the beginning point. Right, right. Um, And I'm not going to go into that either right now because I may have done that before, but I think that's so important. That whole idea about observation and the observation of the process of normalization is so important. We need to spend time. Mm -hmm. We actually have a whole episode on normalization. I think it's way back at the beginning, episode four, that talks about what to look for when you're looking for a normalized child. Excellent. 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 (laughs) Oh, you are way ahead. (laughs) She she also says that the child has a great plea, a great desire Mm -hmm. to do everything all by myself. Yes. Yes. And so that internally they seek very precise and and an instinctive directness of purpose. But they don't always, you know, we we have as adults have to help them sometimes to discover that purpose. And that 
purpose can be discarded in what she calls points of interest. Mm-hmm. And they're not all given at one time, but they are those things that we sort of gently challenge to a greater refinement. And the children love to do that. They want to get better. They want to be more precise and refined. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and especially they want to work positively toward their own independence. Mm-hmm. Well, right, using real things. Real, it only happens with real things. Exactly. So if when yeah. you give them the busy things, they, they know that it's a busy item. They want, they, to, do. they want to do what they see you doing. And That's right. It. I'm glad you said that because that gets back to those transient preliminary basic activities like pouring beans um you know they reach satisfaction with that and then after that they have no use for them right right and that's where you see oh well let's pour water in beans or let's hide the beans or let's throw the beans or let you know right right so we can tell behavior yes exactly so we can tell when they've reached that up to that point though they're incredibly meticulous and uh, they perform tasks scrupulously. Mm-hmm. It's just amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, she writes that this new being, this new this new child that's emerging after all these other things are dropping off, she says it has genuine qualities, a genuine discipline, which is different from blind submission, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. an ability to relate to reality, which is different from fantastical spurts of joy of energy joy energy for example (laughs) taking the good shepherd and zooming him around Mm -hmm. okay that may be something that's interesting but it's not real necessarily (laughs) she also says that this new being will have a joy that's different than transient happiness i think in many ways people talk about being happy but that's different than being joyful Mm -hmm. Yeah. Joy comes in any circumstance under even the worst of circumstances sometimes out of this inner peace and inner satisfaction. There is a satis- self-satisfaction for these children too that's different than mindless busyness, as you said. And there is a love, which is very different from a superficial attachment. Though That change was so amazing that people began to, to notice it, write about it, come to see. Mm-hmm. In fact, they came from all, of, all over the world to see these new children. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that's what people see when they come in our atria and they see 13, 3, 4, and 5-year-olds yes. working peacefully, independently. And it's because these children have found this inner discipline, this inner peace that yes. you're speaking about within oh, the exactly. work. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, And I also want to say, too, that what's particularly fascinating in the case of older children, the 6 to 12-year-olds, is that they have an intelligence different than that of the young child. Yes. Uh, their, Their intelligence is, I love this phrase, thrown outward to embrace the whole of the cosmos (laughs) and the whole of humanity. (laughs) Isn't that wonderful? Yeah, it's very big. (laughs) (laughs) They have this developmental hunger then that has to do with understanding a functioning of the work, Mm -hmm. the functioning of the world, excuse me, and the functioning of human society. Not only do they live their work like young children, but they can reflect on it. And they can reflect on the purpose of their work and what is undertaken 
also for the greater good. The why. Yeah. And in this way, those elementary children develop a cosmic morality that involves respect for and includes gratitude to God for all of life and for other people. And it's this, oh, Carrie, it's this kind of respect and gratitude that is most desperately needed Mm -hmm. in today's world. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I agree. So, um, you know, that doesn't, you know, that may not get into the particular activities that we see and call practical life, but it does tell you what undergirds them. Yes, that that is the short answer for what is practical life. And I think it's beautiful because you've just explained more of the why is practical life. Why is this so important for the child? Yes, yes. Well, that does tell you why, you know, what they what it is. But I do want to talk a little more about the why. Let's hear it. Why do we do it, Sherry? Why do we do practical life? (laughs) Well... Because actually, it's the, it's the actual work that focuses on helping the child become a useful member of the family yeah, or yeah. the group or the culture around them. So these familiar everyday activities are the things that give opportunities for the building blocks of all further development. Now, in an atrium, I believe that we offer practical life to answer the call of our good shepherd to hear and to help the child realize a full and satisfying life in four particular ways. And the first one is from Psalm 139, 14. I praise thee for I was made wonderfully. (laughs) Wonderful are your works, O God. And I think that that's one of the real reasons why we have practical life. To help the children realize just how wonderfully Mm. we are made. I love that. And so as they refine themselves, we can help them notice it. Oh, I see that you can carry one little piece of rice between your finger and your thumb. Amazing. (laughs) I see you can walk around this table without bumping it. Oh, you are amazingly made. I love that. That's using practical life as a way for the children to recognize their own dignity. Oh, that's exactly right. I could not have said it better. Could not have said it better. The second second answer to this is from Psalm 46, 10. Be still so that... You can know I am God. Mm-hmm. You definitely God. see that in the children yes. when they are doing practical life. It's maybe the one place where maybe things slow down for them in yes. life. It is so true. Without the practical life, children cannot listen. They cannot sit still. They cannot, they cannot essentially pray. They cannot... They cannot function as, um, what do I want to say, productive members of a group. Yeah. They, they can do those things, of course, if they're all alone in a cave by themselves. But if you place a human being in a group, they have to be still. If you want them to have a relationship with Jesus. Yeah. 
they have to know God. And that comes out of silence. So that's a very important thing. The third thing, the third reason that we offered is found in Psalm 133. One, how good and pleasant it is when we dwell in unity. Mm. And you see, all of practical life, I, I think all of it, has the aim and also the boundary of being with and for and supporting the community. Yes, they learn and do all of these individual activities to be who they are. And the reason we be who we are is so we can become a member of our community. Mm -hmm. And we can do that when we dwell in unity. <laughs> and the fourth one is very specific, I think, to our atrium. It's specific to all things, all of Montessori's work, but she doesn't specific. She doesn't tell everybody that. That's one of the best secrets of all, all of these things, <laughs> and that is to um, is to give the child a sense that they are loved beyond any comprehension, that they are known, they are known by their names, and that is the same way that our Good Shepherd knows the Father and the Father knows Jesus. Mm. And you'll notice, especially, we were talking about the gift of silence. The, the, whole, the whole key of the gift of silence is that the adult whispers <laughs> and calls a child out by name. Mm. You know, we could go on and on uh, and... Uh, Unfortunately, this has a time limit, but I do want to uh, be sure that we really do talk about about these essential things. And I want to go back now to grace and courtesy. Okay. Right. So I want to use I want to use Montessori's terms with this, not necessarily the the terms we find in, in theology or religion. Okay. Okay. So if we were going to find one word to describe this old fashioned idea of good manners. It would be harmony. Mm -hmm. yeah. This is this is grace in the context of physical harmony between the mind and the body. Isn't that great? Physical harmony between mind and body. Mm. Courtesy is the harmony between oneself and others. And these are achieved through the forms and the manners a particular society has established already as acceptable and meaningful. And they're different in different areas of our country or maybe even in the areas of our cities mm -hmm. or certainly in the world. Yeah. So these are important for the child to be able to live harmoniously in a family or in a classroom or in an atrium. These signify to others that we respect them. We respect their needs and, and their wants and that we can actually give them our consideration and they ease our relationship with other people. Now, I do want to go back to Dr. Montessori's view though here that the good manners or this grace and courtesy allows individuals to relax and to be themselves, but also to consider the needs of others. 
And if we, as adults, pass on this, then we give our children the power to create harmony too and help show them to a certain extent, as much as it depends upon them, that they can be partly responsible. I think that as adults, sometimes we assume that children know these basic Mm -hmm. grace and courtesies. Um, Yeah. But I love that you said that it's up to us to show them these grace and courtesies um, because I think that that's important for us to kind of isolate. Okay, what do you do when you bump into somebody? What do you do when you need their attention? Like these things we assume children know them. But um, as much as it is in their their power is so true also because they're learning from how we are behaving also. So if we ourselves do not have grace and courtesy to them or to others. Yes, yes, yes. That's they absorb it all. Yeah. They absorb it all. Yeah. And how embarrassing is that when it comes out? <laughs> when we see mirrors of ourselves, it's great fun. Oh, yeah, indeed, indeed. So, and and I and there is a little bit of a difference between first and second um, levels too, uh, and that is that at the first plane of development, this is um, this is a natural time for the children to uh, be attracted to and want to imitate. Sure. <laughs> but they're not fully social. So how do they learn? Well, there's a wonderful way to do this. And it's not to lecture to them either. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we present these in a way that they can explore them by first watching adults role play different situations. And at the young, at the for the young child, we must always role play the kind of behavior we are hoping for. At the older age, we can show, you know, it's very funny for the older children to look at something that we do poorly and be able to think about mm. that and, and see, but the little ones don't. So if you want them to ha- behave in a certain way, you better show them the way that right. you want them right. to act. Okay. So that's very important. So first they watch adults play those different roles, and then they get to try them out. So they get to practice those words and gestures and movements over and over until they get internalized. And so at first, they're prepared uh, as a demonstration by two adults usually, and so the adults model it. Then one adult chooses maybe one child or uh, to act it out again, repeating with another child and another child. You don't have to repeat with everybody in the group necessarily, because then two children will demonstrate what they've learned. And that's, that's what you really are after, that they internalize it. So they introduce, I mean, we introduce, excuse me, the very basic lessons then of graceful movement, how to walk, how to roll a mat, how to sit in the group, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm, and as mm-hmm. they mature in awareness and interest in others, then, then we add more challenge. You know, in other words, as they begin to notice other people in their environment, then we show them how we can get someone's attention, or how to greet one another, how to ask for help. And then as they begin to notice social relationships, then we begin to show them other more complicated things, how to invite someone to have a snack with you, how to work together. Hmm. Is there a list of these grace and courtesies somewhere, and maybe a simple description of how you would present them to children? Well, there is. And uh, that's a part of, you know, that was a part of our uh, second Monterey Essentials course. I can, uh, I can send that to you as a 
you know, as a, as a reference that they can uh, look at if they want to. I would not say that there is a, you know, we don't have a specific list. We have kind of categories of things. Mm. And I've sort of mentioned some of them. And the first ones have to do with an individual child in an individual body. And the next one has to do with noticing other people. And lastly, it is how you get along in a group, in a community. So right. that's the sequence. Right. And then what we put in within that really depends upon what you notice that needs to be done in an, in an environment. Right. Uh, okay. But yes, there are, there are some things that I have listed. Now. Generally speaking, understanding other people's needs and feelings uh, will develop into an empathy. So mm. demonstrations of more complicated skills are given, you know, uh, you know, gradually. How to offer help, how to refuse assistance, how to enter a conversation, how to express gratitude, how to make an introduction, how to express a different, different opinion. You know, we have lost these things. I know. I'm thinking in my head, I'm right now, I'm like, oh, my children need these lessons. And oh, well, actually, I think a bunch of adults might need these lessons. You think so? Yeah. <laughs> I, I totally, oh, is that so right? We do. You know, we we do not teach the, I mean, this, it used to be called etiquette. I don't know. I mean, even George Washington wrote a, uh, you know, had a diary of things that he felt were necessary for etiquette or something <laughs> like that. So, I mean, but those have been thrown out, it seems like. So anyway, but ultimately our goal as adults is that the children mature. And as they develop, they assume the joy and the responsibility of taking part in society mm. and contributing to its harmony. Wow. Mm -hmm. Now in the second plane, <laughs> there's a change. In fact, it was it's so abrupt that uh, Montessori herself deemed it the age of rudeness. And then she went on to explain that this change is, is part of a logical plan, that the aim is to arouse not only a hunger for knowledge and understanding, but a claim to mental independence, mm. social independence, a desire to distinguish by the child's own power what is good behavior and bad? What is evil? What is not? What a more positive way to look at that age. <laughs> oh, for goodness sake, yes. Um, there, she says the biggest, the biggest problem, however, is that they resist limitation. Yeah. And especially by an, an arbitrary authority or an arbitrary reason. That. So she does encourage us, Carrie, to recognize these changes as positive and constructive and to cultivate <laughs> these desires to meet the needs of this older child, this older one, to develop the full potentiality of this kind of social etiquette. Now, we know that at the first plane, the child is interested in and drawn to learning, just, just fascinated by the courtesies of social life. But when they enter second plane, <laughs> there's a motivation, yes. But now it's attaining greater degrees of independence. Mm -hmm. In order to take the place in society as a thinking, reasonable, logical, productive human being, he's pushed to spread his wings and test the limits and to make decisions that are within his power to make on his own 
Why? To see what will and will not work. Hmm. To learn what is right and wrong, good and bad for himself. And in today's world, where are our young people learning these things? Yeah. So in testing limits, Montessori says this, we must practice using our own judgment. And it could be very different than the adults. And often, and often they push a button. <laughs> you know, they'll have a quick retort to what's said. But if we can get beneath that and think to ourselves, you know, what they're asking is, can I still get what I want without using magic words? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, what happens if I don't use magic words? Mm-hmm. Why do I have to use magic words? It means nothing. So what our point is that we have to learn to help them make these distinctions and let them practice trying out different ways. And yet the adults in the room in their lives <laughs> have the responsibility to guide and help them become aware of the reasons why mm. these are decisions. So this age child, the second plain child, six to 12, they're interested in the why. Yes. Well, why do I need to act this way? Why do I need to do these different grace and courtesies and allowing them the opportunity to test them and see how people react and how they feel and other people yes. feel around them. Right. Right. Mm, interesting. And is that any different than what they're doing intellectually in every other situation? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not really, is it? They want to know why, how, you know, what makes this difference? What, what difference does it make? That kind of thing. Um, and I would say, too, that mo- most of the testing is fairly harmless and it can be dealt with with a sense of humor. Mm-hmm. However, the adult is the person who must know what the acceptable limits are and we must hold the child to them. There is a line they may not cross. <laughs> Hurtful, harmful, disrespectful, slanderous, rude behavior can't be tolerated or let me say it this way, is not the behavior most people want in their family or in the classroom or in the atrium. Mm -hmm. So then when you encounter that behavior in that second plane child, how would you respond? In a second plane, you have to, I would, you know, we we talk about discipline and that's another whole podcast, Gary, and how discipline, okay, and and the three levels of obedience and all of that kind of thing. But we must stop harmful, hurtful behavior. Now, there are ways to do that. And I'm not suggesting anybody give the child the example of screaming at them across the room. (laughs) I would suggest that the first thing we do is just move toward them. Just close the distance between us and then closer and closer until, I mean, they know. It's not that they don't know what is at six to nine, at least. They do know, I think, what is probably going to work with this particular adult. (laughs) Mm -hmm. This particular, they really think they do. Uh, But, and and a lot of times they're just seeing, well, is she going to stop me now? 
but then that's the next. Then there's another step too, and that is you've got to talk to them about it and give them the reason why you want them to stop. It's not enough just to say I told you so. That's arbitrary in their mind. Mm-hmm. Right. They want to know what it means to wish someone well. That's important. That's what we have to show them. That even if we don't like somebody or don't agree with somebody, we can still offer courtesy. We can be, you know, even just simple respect. And that's really a very important reason. So she reminds us that yes, the child may resent limitation, but we also have to give logical reasons. The long, older child longs to understand this world and how it functions, and that's true of all of life and how it relates to each other. So we've got a big job, really. Um, I think, too, that she observed that elementary children have this need to associate themselves with others. And not just to keep each other's company or to, you know, play with each other uh, in organized sports, but they need to have some kind of contact that is a little bit, um, well, they band together, I guess. And and they they will do that, they will do that as children normally. Always, you know, we see that happen all everywhere. And sometimes they band together for very good reasons, and sometimes it is for mischief. And again, the adults in their lives have to be observant and not allow gangs or cliques to develop. And one of the best ways that we can do that is by encouraging the different combinations of children to work together. Yes, choose an interest that everybody may have, and it may be a common goal, but don't always have the same groups of children together, and certainly not, she would suggest, based upon the same age or grade or, or level. You know what I mean? Just, right. Okay, because what she discovered was that if you have everybody in the same age, then you promote attitudes of competition instead of cooperation. Mm. Because the children don't have... You know, the little ones don't look up to the older ones. The older ones don't have a reason to be examples for little ones. I think that's a very hidden kind of point (laughs) that we sometimes forget. And certainly that's true in mass education as a whole. Goodness. So she's saying that the elementary children need this wider society in which to explore it. She calls this going out. And she says it's an essential component for their their development and their experience. Again, our responsibility is to help prepare, but these expeditions should be planned by the children. These are not field trips. These are not those things that adults arrange, you know, a a teacher or an adult arranges, uh, takes the initiative, makes all the plans, etc. Yeah, that's a whole different section, a whole different a whole different set of skills. And that's important, but what she's saying is that um, the children themselves need to be included in these discussions, in these places where they're going to go, how those places or people relate to their questions and their interests. How can they contact these places? 
uh, or business? What are the hours? What is the admission fee? How are they going to get there? Now, at first, yes, the adult's going to be pretty involved in that. Perhaps it's just nothing but an outline so they can follow it themselves. That would be good too. But eventually, we want the children to take more and more responsibility because the more responsibility they take, the more involved intrinsically, internally they will be. So all of these things is, are, are very, very important in the planning of the going out and then after the going out's taken place, that doesn't end the uh, idea. They need to decide how the information is going to be shared once they get back. How they thank the people who assisted them, how to write notes or uh, you know, to, to people that acted as their guide, etc. So all of these things are really ways that we give them the opportunities to understand the purpose for these good manners. Mm -hmm. It's not just being told what to do. It's being, it's experience that gets to do it. The last thing I'm going to talk about in terms of grace and courtesy is the aspect of going out that Montessori thought was really important. And that's the idea of community service. Mm. Giving back. These older children are called to, it's, it's like this inner drive to seek this wider spectrum and provide opportunities to do something tangible to help. And they do it better if they know what a specific need might be. Collecting diapers uh, or having a food drive or uh, instead of birthday presents, having everybody bring a can of food. I mean, there are so many things that you can I mean, go on and on. It's endless. Yeah. But especially for the 9 to 12-year-olds, there is this great interest. And they need to offer themselves in some form of service outside of their own family and their own group. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be real far outside. I mean, going to a soup kitchen for a 9-year-old might be a little tough. If you're 12, however, you have more experience dealing with some of the situations, some of the needs and um, sights <laughs> of the people who come. Mm -hmm. they, can, they can handle these more. But dropping them into a situation where they're responsible for AIDS patients at this age is probably not a good idea. Okay? Yeah. So we have to be very careful where, you know, where we're going to, um, uh, where they're going out places might, might be. Right, right. And the other thing, Carrie, is because they're so sensitive to morality and justice, they want to help right the wrongs. They want to, you know, they want to collect. They want to do good things for, for people. And so they're very appealing. So you get right down to it. She says manners aren't really lost. It would be accurate to say they have become dormant. Mm. These children, these elementary, older, 9 to 12 children can be charming, respectful, altruistic, kind, gracious, courteous. They just have to have a reason for being that way. <laughs> <laughs> they just need the why. They do. They do. Hey, Sherry, if you could just speak into, you know, practical life is such a huge part of Montessori and also what we do in Catechesis Good Shepherd. Yes. Where did it come from? Where did this idea of practical life come from? <laughs> you know, 
I think partly because uh, Montessori was a very faithful, very faithful, very church going uh, and had a very strong relationship to Christ and her church. I think probably the first thing is that she realized that our Lord Jesus didn't come to us <laughs> in a pampered royalty. Right. He, he came to a humble family and he participated in the mundane daily life of the people around him. And he never scorned those things. He never scorned them. In fact, he participated in the work. So I think he was her example. He is our example and our model. Mm. Now, as I look, though, at the first Casa de Bambini, I think those were most of the materials there were sensorial and they were toys. <laughs> uh, the toys were soon left behind. But uh, eventually, because I think of her her um, medical concern for hygiene, she began um, to give them little presentations like blowing their nose yeah. and washing their hands and helping them put on a coat, you know, or showing them how to put on their own coats. And she found that these very simple activities provided for a deeper need. Mm. And she developed more and more and more of them. Lunch, and the snacks that they ate became a focus of many familiar activities that we see, preparing tables, helping to serve the food, washing, drying, restoring dishes, etc., etc., etc. So I think, I think first of all, she had a model, and that was Jesus himself. And secondly, she began to realize that the children had this fascination and desire to become a member of their society and the way that they could do that was by participating in this. Right. That makes sense. So I think that's where it came from. Now, did it grow? Absolutely. Sure. Sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. It's indispensable. Well, Sherry, could you speak into why we have practical life in the atrium and in the religious education. Yeah, I can. So, okay, first of all, I tried to kind of speak to these these spiritual aspects throughout the whole podcast here, uh, but I also want to uh, specifically say that that and, and I'm going to use Montessori's words here and from you know from that very old book <laughs> that we uh, that we refer to over and over, uh, which is the child in the church. Uh, and that is that religious education can be considered in accordance in the same terms as the method as a whole. So I don't know that when you look at the whole of, of the, well, especially if we look at the theories behind, the, the reasons behind, the purposes behind what Montessori was seeing in the work she did, uh, and in the revelations that God himself gave her mm -hmm. by observing the children, mm -hmm. what she's saying is that, you know, there's really no real difference. There is a, there is a solemnity about the work that we do and, you know, for prepare the child to enter church, but we use the same kind of uh, methods and techniques. And that was the most amazing and wonderful, I think, a connection between Dr. Montessori and 
Sophia Cavalletti and John Agobi, mm-hmm. because what they both came to realize is that by treating the children, looking at the children in different ways as this normal, you know, as a process that can be normalized, they become normal, beautiful human beings in the image of God. Whether that's in the family, whether that's in a dream, or whether that's in a classroom. And so those things like the prepared environment or the areas in that prepared environment, the adult who guides it and knows when to step back and observe and enter back in, Um, adults who understand language that has to be specific and categorized Mm -hmm. and and communication that's respectful and uh, order and beauty which are intrinsic and fundamental to every environment. And that there are needs for security and acceptance and love that are met in every single connection between the child, the adult, the child, and God. And that's not, again, different in those different places. And one of the things that I think she was most surprised about is that she says, and I'll read this one, right from the discovery of the child, a fruit, to there appeared to our surprise, a fruit to our methods that we had not anticipated. <laughs> it was that the church is almost always the end which the application of the method sets out to give. Mm. And she says, growing up in this way, Children show pleasing self-confidence, courage, calm knowledge of things, and above all, faith and trust in God as their creator and the author and preserver of life. Hmm. She says, we know there's a sense of God that exists in the heart of the young child, but it is not yet conscious. And it is fragile and may be obstructed. So it's important that we help the children develop the necessary skills in order to do life, to do the work of life. The thing now is that we just have to recognize that these lessons, these especially the spiritual lessons, I'll say this over and over, spiritual lessons are never to be identified in the child's mind as some school lesson with recitations and cross-examinations right right. okay that's that has no place in the atrium um a real spiritual relationship with jesus is mysterious and it's inexpressible but they can really love him and they desire to have a part in that religious life they desire to be a part of the family right um, I would suggest, too, that Jean Agobe is listening to God in the child. Yes. I, I can't recommend that more. Highly. I was thinking the same thing, that that is a beautiful companion to this topic, especially the chapter on the child's work. Yes, exactly. The only thing I will say as, an, you know, as kind of an introduction to fostering at home is that the only difference that I see here is that the whole place is the prepared environment. <laughs> the whole home is, mm-hmm. except 
with a possible exception of those very early exercises that help those little children prepare the skills necessary to do real work. So those little preliminary exercises might be something that we do, you know, we set up on a, on the child's own table somehow, and they can practice that right. pouring and, and spooning and all of those things, because it is when they can succeed in those that they are really ready then to participate in the fam, you know, in the family meal and and uh, in the family work itself. Yeah. So those are those are important for um, oh so many things: coordination of eyes and hands, mm-hmm. the hand, wrist, finger control all of those mm-hmm. things. Um, and the other thing I might say too is that there can be a part, in fact, maybe there should be a part in every room where a child has a place for, for himself mm. or herself. A chair, on, you know, not, you know, a chair, a table, a little cabinet, mm. someplace where they can, they can be a part of the family, but they have this little room, this little space in every room. So the two-year-old doesn't feel like there's nothing in here for me. Right. Mm. Right. I like that. I like that. And one important part of the, you know, most important place for a little one to be is on their laps of their mom and dad <laughs> <laughs> or big sister or brother. Right. Anyway. Uh, and also we always remember then that the activities, the daily mundane activities of the family provide those activities for real work. Mm-hmm. So yes, we have to make adjustments to the height of the working tables or cabinets or drawers to make the work accessible. But more than that, I think we have to give them a slower pace and to remember that efficiency is not the goal right. of a child. Right. Development is and shared life shared life taking part of that life that's what they really need Mm -hmm. so that's our point find ways to allow the children to have some part in whatever work is going on and in this way the same values and the same characteristics can be observed just as they were with dr montessori that's beautiful Well, Sherry, thank you so much. This has been so wonderful, so wise. I just, so many little nuggets of information that I feel like I'm going to have to re-listen to just in order to really ponder the depth and beauty that practical life offers us, both um, in our homes and in the atrium and in the classroom. It's rich food. It is. It It really is. You did a beautiful job of really going deep into that why and the purpose of it and the beauty of it. I just love it. Well, I'm delighted. I'm so pleased that you asked. I'm delighted that we had a chance, that we persevered, <laughs> found the time and the, the way <laughs> to do this. And um, I just I just love being a part of this work. It is the greatest gift of God anywhere, isn't I, it? <laughs> I totally agree. I totally agree. Well, thank you so much, Sherry. You're welcome. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you all for listening to this week's episode of the Good Shepherd and the Child podcast. This podcast is sponsored by the United States Association of Catechesis of the Good Shepherd. We would like to thank all the contributing members for making this podcast possible. If you would like to know more about Catechesis of the Good Shepherd or to become a member, please go to cgsusa.org. Thank you all for listening this week. We will see you in two weeks. Go and fall more deeply in love with God.